Oh, thank you, a bit of a late laugh there. <laughs> right, we're continuing our series, as David uh, indicated earlier, and um, I'm going to read to you from Micah, Micah chapter 5. And uh, I'll wait a, a little while. It's not the easiest book to find, is it, Micah? <clears throat> so, Micah chapter 5, and I'm just going to read the first four verses. <clears throat> Micah chapter 5. Marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for all that it contains for us. And Lord, we ask, as always, that as we consider this passage this morning, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit will be present amongst us to open our understanding and to teach us from your word in order that each one of us, Lord, might move closer to you this morning through your word. In your precious and worthy name, amen. Now this is quite a difficult little passage, I think, these four verses of Micah. Um, it's the second in our Advent series. The title of the series is The King is Coming, and it's looking at statements from Old Testament prophets that relate to the story of Christmas that, that look forward to the birth of Christ. Um, and that's what, again, we're doing this morning. Peter last week was in Jeremiah, um, looking at the righteous branch. And so this morning we're in Micah. And it's interesting because Micah is one of what is referred to as the minor prophets. He was a contemporary of Isaiah, but a very different man, it came from a very different background to Isaiah. Isaiah was a nobleman, and he was prophesying mainly in the court. Um, Micah was really, uh, in human terms, far more insignificant. He came from a little town called Morasheth. And so he, if you like, um, in human terms again, was more, far more obscure. But we're looking today at these verses that he wrote. And we're looking at how remarkable it is that these Old Testament prophets were able to prophesy at the same time they were able to speak into events that were happening at their time. But also, they had words for generations to come and they have words for us today. So we've, we've had, we've got a busy service today. There's a lot of things happening this morning, so I'll be brief. Famous last words. Um, 
There's just three things that I want us to look at. Three things that I want to pull out this morning from these four verses in Micah. The first is this. I want us to see the perfect intricacy of the construction of the Bible. Now, I'm very aware that when you have three points or four points, you do that in order to simplify the message. But my first point is a bit complicated, isn't it? It's a bit wordy. So I apologize for that. But I want us to see the perfect intricacy of the construction of the Bible. Because we need to understand that the Bible is the whole. It's the Old Testament and the New Testament. Often people will tend to concentrate purely on the New Testament because they think possibly it's a little easier to understand, it's a little easier to interpret. But us as Christians, we have to look at the Bible as a whole. And I want us to try and gain from this passage this morning a greater understanding of how wonderfully and intricately and perfectly the Bible has constructed and is put together. Now, any man here who comes to the men's Bible study comes to it, joins online the men's Bible study on a Wednesday morning, is is already aware of this. And the reason for that is because Dan Hall impresses it upon us pretty much every week. And I think he's been doing it for a long, long time. And it's so important to do so, that we understand the majesty of the Bible. You know, particularly in the world in which we live, where people are quick to disrespect the Bible, quick to take a particular passage out of a a book in the Old Testament and then use that to ridicule the Bible as a whole or ridicule Christianity or to show that the Bible is old-fashioned or that it doesn't apply anymore. And it's important for us to understand as Christians and to be able to defend the Bible because the Bible is is a wonderful book that is constructed in an incredibly intricate and perfect way by God. We see a couple of examples of this here. If you look in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, Micah is talking to the people about coming destruction. Because the thing I shall perhaps mention about Micah is that both Micah and Isaiah were writing round about 700 BC, so probably 700 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And they were writing at a time when the people of God had been wicked for years and years and years. There had been bright spots in that history where some kings had been good kings and they tried to bring the people back to their faith in God. But there were many, many wicked and evil kings. And we read, if you study it, that some terrible things had taken place in the kingdom of Israel. Terrible abominations and sins that angered God. And included in that history, we'd see that the, the, the Israel itself split into two kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom, Israel. You had the southern kingdom, Judah. Now, either at the time Micah wrote this or very close to it, the northern kingdom, Israel, fell into the hands of Assyria. It was conquered and it disappeared. And Micah and Isaiah were writing about this and they were looking ahead and they could foresee that Jerusalem and Judah itself was going to fall. 
But in this, as he's writing this, he then, we have this verse where he looks ahead to something, to something good that's going to happen in the future. And he talks about Bethlehem and says, Bethlehem, you know, although you are insignificant, if you like, as a town, out of you is going to come this great king and this great ruler. Micah 5 verse 2, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. Then wind the clock forward 700 years to Matthew chapter 2 and verse 6, where Matthew writes, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. So 700 years after Micah wrote these words about Bethlehem, Matthew repeats his words as he's talking about the birth of Christ. Similarly, in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, Isaiah writes, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Again, wind the clock forward 700 years and Matthew writes, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin shall be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So this verse in Micah is repeated by Matthew 700 years later. The words of Isaiah are repeated by Matthew 700 years later. Jesus himself frequently quoted from the Old Testament. If you want a, a deeper a, a example of this, read, read Romans chapter 4 where Paul, in writing to this church at Rome, which was a cosmopolitan city, which had got Jews in it, it had got Gentiles in it, it had got all kinds of things. In fact, and I can hear Dan Hall telling me this now as I'm speaking, don't just tell them to read chapter 4, read the whole book of Romans. Because the book of Romans is a masterful summary of the gospel. It sets out the gospel and Christianity in its entirety. But in Romans chapter 4, Paul takes that chapter to explain about how with the birth of Christ, we've moved from having to observe the Mosaic law that was handed down to Moses, and we've moved to a position now where we're justified by faith in Christ. And that was the fundamental rift between the Jewish church, the Jews and Christians. Because Christianity said we now no longer rely on keeping the law. We now, the only thing that matters is faith in Christ. But Paul in Romans chapter 4 brings together all of Jewish history and he explains how Abraham in the book of Genesis how the Bible says in the book of Genesis that Abraham, when God gave him promises, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. 
So he's saying this whole doctrine of faith and justification by faith, it isn't new. It can be traced right back to the first book in the Bible and into the beginnings of Judaic law. And that, you could come up, we could go through example of example and example of how the Bible perfectly fits together. And how reading in the Old Testament, in many, many chapters and books in the Old Testament, particularly in Psalms, when you're reading them, there's an application that applies specifically to what the writer was writing about. But you can also feel an echo, a resonance that's looking ahead, and it's looking ahead to the New Testament and the birth of Christ. And it's so intricate, and it's so perfect, and it's so wonderfully put together that this book could not have been the brainchild of, of men or women. It had to be divinely inspired. And this is something that we lose sight of sometimes. So I would urge you to, to, to look at the Bible afresh as a whole and to, and to not be afraid of the Old Testament, but to go into the Old Testament. There are study guides available. There are Bible studies in this church. There are resources aplenty. But the more that you get into the Bible as a whole, you see how it's been wonderfully knit together and is perfectly put together by God. So that's the first thing that I want to share. That's really why we're in Micah at Christmas time, in Advent, because it's a perfect example of God's planning, of God's creation, of God's forethought, of God's attention to detail. That an obscure prophet from an obscure town, speaking to people 700 years before the birth of Christ, how his words were not only relevant to that situation at that time, but they're relevant to our situation right now. And they were quoted at the birth of Christ. A wonderful, intricate perfection that's reflected in everything relating to God, it's reflected in the universe, it's reflected in nature, it's reflected in us, it's reflected in his plans for us. If we would allow him to work out his plans for us, we would find that they also are perfect and intricate and beautifully constructed. The second thing that I want to draw out of this is the sternness and kindness of God. And I borrow that phrase from the New International Version, Paul again in Romans chapter 11. Paul talks about the sternness and the kindness of God. The King James translates that as the goodness and the severity of God. So enshrined within this perfect, intricate, construction that is the Bible throughout the Bible and it's like you can cut the Bible you cut you know you cut a cake and you see the filling whichever piece you cut the Bible's the same running through the Bible is this thread of stern the sternness and kindness of God now you might say to me look have a look behind you you're standing in front of Christmas trees it's a season of goodwill and cheer. You can't talk about sternness. You can't talk about severity. 
And I did think, as I was preparing this, I thought that perhaps I might be accused of being the Christmas Grinch for a few moments. But we can't escape this. Because the Bible as a whole, and this passage in Micah as a microcosm, and Christmas, and Christianity, and the gospel are based on an understanding that there is a sternness and a kindness of God. You see, this passage, when Micah wrote this, he was not writing this at a happy time. He was not writing this when the streets were full of rejoicing and happiness and optimism and excitement. Because he was writing this and Isaiah was writing at a time when the children of God were starting to see the terrible punishment that had come, was coming and was going to come as a direct result of their sin. And other prophets wrestled with this same thing. Why is it that the children of God, the children of Israel, are going to suffer this hardship? Why are they going to be conquered by the Assyrians? Why are they going to be conquered by Babylon? Why will Jerusalem be dis destroyed by the Romans? Why? 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 These are your people, God. How can these things happen? And the explanation is, that God hates sin. God loves the sinner, but God hates sin. And there is a sternness. There is a severity to God. And we kid ourselves if we don't understand that to be true. And so punishment came, and punishment was going to come because of the sins of the people. Look at... Micah 1, verse 1. Marshal your troops, O city of troops. A siege is laid against you, against us. Verse 4. Now, verse 3. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned. The wonderful news is that in addition to the sternness and the severity of God when faced with sin. There is a goodness, there is a kindness, there is an all-encompassing love that God has for the sinner. If the sinner separates himself or herself from the sin. And we see this, this is why Micah speaks as he does. He speaks in the midst of oppression. He speaks in the midst of fear and anxiety. But he changes the focus of the people and says, a ruler is going to come out of, Jerusalem, out of Bethlehem and he's going to restore everything. And the end of verse 4, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. So throughout this passage, throughout the Bible, 
we have these two themes, that God is angry with sin and God will punish sin. But because he loves the world and he loves us so much that he will prepare for us and present us a way to escape from that punishment. And that's what the gospel is. That's what Christianity is about. That's what Christmas is about. That God sent his son that he would die and rise again. And anyone who believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. We need to understand that duality, that causality, that cause and effect. Sin will be punished. There will be consequences for sin. But God has made a way for us to be reconciled with him. Romans 11:22 Consider therefore the sternness and kindness of God sternness to those who fell but kindness to you Now the verse doesn't finish there He says sternness to those who fell but kindness to you provided that you continue in his kindness Otherwise, you also will be cut off. So there's a causality, there's a cause and effect. And we are saved, yes, but we need to understand that causality, that God wants us, even after we are saved and we are Christians, he wants us to live in a way that glorifies him. He wants us to live in a way that imitates Christ. He wants us to be Christ-like in the way we deal with people, the way we react with people, the level of patience we display to people, how we organize our affairs, how we conduct ourselves. He wants a standard of conduct and day-to-day -day living from us that is different to what is expected by the world. Briefly, I want to well, briefly. I just want to turn to Isaiah and read a few verses from Isaiah, just to underline this point. Isaiah chapter one, Isaiah chapter one, and reading from verse fifteen. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If, if you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. And again, we could spend hours going through the Bible from Deuteronomy right the way through and looking at verses which make it clear that there are consequences to our lives spiritually based on how we live. 
The more that we can live our lives in a way that honors God, then the more we are sensitive and open to the Holy Spirit, the more his hand of blessing is upon us. This isn't a prosperity gospel. This is, I'm not saying, you know, you, you, you be good and you'll be a millionaire. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that this sternness and kindness of God, whether we like it or not, runs throughout the Bible. And it means that for every single one of us in this church this morning as Christians... We need to remember the sternness and kindness of God. He wants us to live in a way that glorifies him. And we all know what that means because we all have a conscience. We all have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. We all know if we're treating somebody in a way that's not right. We all know if we should be apologizing to somebody for something or reconciling to somebody. We know if our motivations are selfish or whether they're honorable. We know whether or not we're spending two minutes a month in our Bibles or whether we're having a quiet time every day. We know whether we're praying or not. We know whether we're giving thanks to God when he blesses us. We know whether we come to him if we have a problem. We know all of these things up here. But God wants us to act them out. God wants us to live in a way that honors him. And the causality applies then because the more we do that, the closer our relationship with him is, the more sensitive we are to the Holy Spirit, the easier it is for the Holy Spirit to guide us and prompt us. So we'll make better choices. So his hand of blessing is so firmly upon us. But the more we deviate, you can see that in the life of Joseph. Look at the life of Joseph. Everything that happened to him, he constantly kept moving forward. He didn't complain. He didn't moan. He didn't fall away. And God kept blessing him wherever he was and using him to influence people. Then you look at Samson, who was given so many gifts. And he took his gifts for granted. He treated them casually. He lived his life the way he wanted to live it and he did what he did whenever he wanted to with whoever he wanted to until a time came when God said enough is enough. So let's, every one of us, as we come into this Christmas period, give thanks for the kindness of God, for our salvation, for the fact that he loves us so much he's provided a way for us to reconcile to him. But let's remember also that he hates sin and there is a sternness to God. And so we need to examine ourselves every day and see if we've behaved in a way that has angered or annoyed or disappointed God. One of the most remarkable verses in the Bible is where it says, do not quench the spirit. In other words, do not Render the Holy Spirit ineffective. What's remarkable about that is that we have the ability to do that. Let's make sure we don't. Time's gone. The last thing I wanted to pull out of this was salvation is not found in human strength. This series is called The King is Coming. I wanted to just call today's message a new king is coming. Because when Micah wrote these words to address the situation that was taking place in Israel and Judah, he wasn't talking about another king just like all the other kings who'd come before. He was talking about a new king. 
He was looking forward to Christ. He was looking forward to the divine. He was looking forward to God entering into the world and changing everything. And that's what our faith gives us the ability to access. It gives us the ability to access a salvation and a protection and a guidance which the world knows nothing about. So, two things from that. One, we should not trust the world for our own advancement or our own <coughs> provision. We should not put our trust in the world. We should commit our lives and our paths to, to God and ask God to guide, to bless, to direct. If we come up against an obstacle, we don't stop coming to church. We turn to God and we, we put it in front of him and ask him to bless us. And the last point is, it means that when we are faced with a difficult obstacle, something that's keeping us up at night, something that's worrying us, some challenge we've got, it means that we don't try and solve it in human terms. Because the answer doesn't come from human resources. That's why Christ came from Bethlehem. Because Bethlehem was an insignificant town. It's why he was born in a stable not in a royal court. Because it confounded the things that the world said was valuable. And that's what we have to do. It's, it's, it's two things. It's not relying on the world for our success. And it's making sure we don't turn to the world when we have a problem. We give it to God. Because the kindness, the goodness of God is such that he will intervene and he will bless and he will deliver us from whatever it is we're facing. I apologize if I've gone on a little bit long. But those three things, let's treasure the perfect intricacy of the construction of the Bible. Let's remember God expects, God expects us to act in a way that honors him. And it's to him that we go with the challenges that life brings us. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much because you love us so much. Lord, we thank you that you have so much that you'd like to give us. Help each one of us, Lord, to examine ourselves and to live every day in a way that honors and glorifies you. And Lord, for anyone here this morning who's struggling with any kind of a challenge, we just pray, Lord, that you, they would bring it to you and give you, Lord, the opportunity to step in and transform their situation in your precious and worthy name. Amen.